there is a lot of joy to be had in photography. It's one of the big reasons why so many of us do it, whether we're professional or not. But one of the most gratifying things about practicing photography is being able to give back and make a difference in other people's lives. There's nothing quite like that. Rob Feekins has been doing this Rob Feekins has been doing this after a long career in advertising and marketing. He's leveraged that understanding of branding to work with nonprofits and NGOs to better share how their work changes people's lives. Rob has taken his love of documentary photography and filmmaking that he's had since he was a youth and created a unique niche for himself in the latest act of his life. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. First off, welcome to the show, Rob. Um, Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I want to start off with your career before you were a photographer and a filmmaker when you were into uh, marketing. And uh, tell me tell me about how, what led you into that career path. Yeah. So when I was in college, there were there were no ad schools or, or schools for for creative people. There probably was Art Center back then. But I was on the East Coast and I was an English major. When I got out of college, I thought I would probably be I wanted to be a documentary photographer slash journalist because I was interested in photography from high school on. I was a member of the camera club in college and uh, there was a dark room and back when we were dealing with film and whatnot. And I was doing a few journalistic pieces for the Dartmouth magazine uh, of different people. And I really liked that combination of photography and journalism. So I got out of college. I didn't know what to do. I went down back to New Jersey where I'd grown up and I slept on my brother's apartment, which was above a garage. And I slept in a sleeping bag for close to a year on his floor. And I got a job as a as a journalist for Morris, the Morris County Daily Record, which is a big kind of suburban newspaper in New Jersey. And I started to, you know, because I was low in the totem pole, I was going to PTA meeting meetings on a hot July night, being the only person in the audience. But I got a nice little piece where I used to write about the uh, manufacturing jobs and, and business jobs. And I kind of tried to turn it into like a human feature piece. So I would write about the world's largest ecclesiastical garment designer was in Morris County. So I did a, an article on that. And then there was an article on, uh, I did on the guys who did the Macy's fireworks parade were in Morris County. And so, you know, back then that was their uh, entire sales were, were once a year. Fourth of July. And that was kind of an interesting business article, but it was tough going. You know, I'd, I was, again, I was sleeping on my brother's floor. I had a 64 Volkswagen bug that was breaking down. And someone said to me, you know, you could be a copywriter in advertising. And I said, what's that? And so they told me what it was to be a copywriter in advertising. Talk about old school. This is how I put my portfolio together. There was a huge stack of National Geographics in the basement of this or in this garage. So I would go down there and I I would go through the National Geographics and I would clip out photographs that I thought were appropriate and write headlines to them and taped the photographs to the bond paper and wrote a headline and copy beneath it and wrote some campaigns and put a book together. 
And I got I got an offer at Ted Bates as a junior copywriter, which doesn't exist anymore. Ted Bates went to Becker, uh, joined uh, Becker Spielvogel, and then they went out of business um, years ago. But um, they were a big agency back then. And I thought big was good. You know, I just thought, you know, whether big, they're solid, they'll be they'll be a good agency. And then I was there for about a year or two when I stumbled across uh, a one show book. And I saw what work could be in advertising. And I was kind of blown away. I was kind of like, wow, this is tremendous work. This is really what good work is. And what what did you see in that work that you weren't seeing where you were? I thought the thing that struck me even back then was that the best work for me wasn't necessarily the most clever or most clever headline, but it was work that made me think differently about a brand or made me think differently about what they were trying to communicate, that I actually kind of learned something from the ad or the commercial. And I was totally struck by it because I was in a huge package goods agency and there was no attempt uh, on many of those accounts to make you think differently about the product versus just tell you how efficacious it was. From then on, I, I tried to do very different kind of work. I got into the, I did get into the one show about a year or two later. I think someone told me the first time the agency had been in the one show since they could ever remember and I slowly clawed my way out of that agency to other agencies and then found my way to Shy Day in Los Angeles around 19 uh, in the mid 80s. And that was amazing to me because that was the first time I felt like I'd been with a company or a group of people that were just everybody was everybody was just impressive. I mean, the receptionist was impressive. Um, and later on became the head of art buying. They just hired people regardless of position who were thought differently, were incredibly intelligent. And I loved working there. I worked there for close to 10 years, if not more. And I really enjoyed there. And that was probably, you know, I think a lot of guys who go to Shy Day or worked at Shy Day kind of look back at those years as maybe their, their heyday. But in any event, that's how we got into advertising. You know, the, the word brand is one that's sort of bandied about a lot. You know, this is my brand or got to, you know, I got to figure right. out what my brand is. And I think a lot of people use it sort of willy-nilly without having a real clear definition of what it means and, and what power lies behind it. From your experience, what is brand? How do people really need to be looking at it, whether they're looking at their own work or looking at someone else's? Yeah, good question. I, I think you can't, well, you're not a brand if you don't have a mission statement and then you're not a brand, if you don't have a mission statement and then activate it from time to time. When I think of the great brands that I've worked on, whether it was Volvo, Apple, Porsche, Target, they all had a real point of view. Even Target as a department store, they didn't have a brand book and a mission book, but they did have a mission statement. And that was, they believed in the, uh, the democracy of style, that everyone should be able to afford style, right? Regardless of how much money you earned. And they would activate that. You know, you could buy a Michael Graves fly swatter for $4. So here's a fly swatter, but it's designed by Michael Graves, which is, I, I just used to find astounding. I remember being at Volvo, which was just an amazing client. This is a client who uh, invented the airbag, you know, invented the side airbag, invented the cage, you know, continually would be creating new safety innovations. And I remember the day uh, I was in the New Jersey offices when Sweden called and said they were going to no longer have 
ashtrays in the car. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal today, but back then, around 1996, not to have an ashtray in a car would be incredibly surprising. But that's, they just believe that. And, and the U.S. dealers, by the way, went nuts. They were like, how are we going to sell a car without an ashtray? But they just believed that they were all about life. And they were about whether it was protecting you with the car or making sure you didn't smoke, they were not going to have an ashtray. So anyhow, all of these brands had a strong point of view. So when you're at the advertising agency and you started becoming a filmmaker and a photographer, tell me about how you came to your own, you know, your own mission statement for, for all mankind. Yeah. I'm going to jump back to my childhood just for a second. Is that okay? Growing up, I, there were six kids. My mom, who you could describe as a charitable person, used to make all of us volunteer about, I would say, four hours a week during high school, which, you know, just doesn't sound like much. But it was New Jersey. It was a period of time when there was a lot of partying. And you know, my sisters were candy stripers. I was a junior corpsman at the hospital. And the last thing I wanted to do was be taking a lab sample somewhere on a Friday night, you know, when I could be at a party. But that stuff sticks with you, right? I mean, at the time, I hated it. But that kind of volunteering stuck with me. You know, my mom used to put me in summer programs with disadvantaged youth. They were racial issues in, in my town back then. And my mom would put me, there was a black section of the town called the Hollow because there was a huge depression topographically. And my mom would put me in a, a work program in there. Then when I went to college, I did a quick, uh, I thought I was going to be a teacher. So I did a, a semester where I taught on the Flathead Indian Reservation at the Kicking Horse Job Corps Center in Rowanam, Montana. And I was one of two white Caucasians out of 350, 400 uh, Native Americans. And it was a great experience to be a minority for once in my life. So anyhow, that stuff, I think, kind of sticks with you. Fast forward to my advertising career, towards the end of my career, the stuff that just moved me was the cause work, whether it was for a nonprofit or whether it was for a billion-dollar brand. I mean, it's hard to find a billion-dollar brand these days who doesn't do cause work. And whether it was working on City Bike and bringing City Bike to New York City or working on Adopt a Foster Child as a nonprofit or doing a movie for the Anti-Defamation League that you know became the first PSA to reach the top 10 leaderboard on, on YouTube. I mean, that was the stuff that just over time uh, moved me. And then, you know, as part of my last job, I was this chief creative officer and president of Publicist New York that went from 200 people to 800 people in eight years. It took a physical toll. And I went through, as a president, you know, I should have been partnering with my CEO, but I went through four CEOs. You know, Paris uh, let go two of them, the home office let go two of them, one of them quit. And the last one, I just frankly, uh, I don't think we really saw eye to eye. To eye. So I kind of thought I'd step away. I did a little traveling. I got sick. Uh, I got cancer. I went through my cancer. And I don't want to say that my cancer changed me at all. I think it just confirmed some stuff. You know, I was, I was wondering what I was going to do. Was I going to go back in advertising or was I really going to start to help nonprofits and help people I thought needed it most with marketing? And when, you, when I went through the cancer, I just felt like, no, I mean, I don't want to go back and, and run Microsoft. I don't want to go back and be the global creative director of Johnson & Johnson. I don't want to be a global creative director for an agency. Um, I've kind of done that. I've kind of 
been in that C-suite and it's time for me to, you know, help people who need it most. And I was long overdue in doing that. And so that just confirmed for me that I was going to help nonprofits. I didn't know how. I thought, you know, because I'd been on the Facebook Creative Council, I thought what I would do is help them with their social media, um, help them with their content calendar creation potentially. But, you know, I started to look at the landscape of nonprofit work and it kind of fit in two places. There was, you know, nonprofits are obsessed with fundraising, understandably so. And so they hire fundraisers and everything is about, you know, the card that we're going to send you in the mail, how we're going to get you to the event, what comedian are we going to have? But there was nothing there about why you should even care about that charity, really. Then the advertising agencies who are working on cause work either for nonprofits or for their global brands were great at ads. But, you know, I've always found that, and I would include myself in this characterization, I always found that ad people cared more about being clever and uh, surprisingly creative, potentially, than being authentic and telling authentic storytelling. They, they weren't, particularly in the early days of content, they weren't interested. Let's hand that off to somebody else. We'll do the clever award-winning PSA. And I just didn't see a lot of authentic content out there. I just didn't see a lot of where's the story of the well being built in Africa. And because that well is built, that little girl doesn't have to spend six hours a day walking five miles to get water. Now she can go to school. And because she can go to school, she's going to have a life. Where's that story? Because if that's the story, then I buy into that. I want to give my money to that. And so I thought that charity should really be focused on issue raising versus fundraising. And that's what I decided to do. I thought I would help out if I could with issue raising with charities and nonprofits. And that's a challenge in terms of dealing with nonprofits, at least in my experience, because to you and me, that makes perfect sense. But I've, I've dealt with some nonprofits in which they say they want what we're just talking about, story, narrative, something that really sort of tugs at the heartstrings that, you know, makes the people really connect with the people that they're, they're serving. And I had one client who was all on board on that. And as we started reworking the video production, they felt they fell back on their default, you know, wanting all the all the information in there that they said initially that they didn't want, you know, the title cards right. with the numbers being served. And all of a sudden, the story got sort of diminished. Right. Because they had to have all that. They believe they had to have all that information. So how do you, how do you, how have you contended when you're faced with a, with a similar, if not exactly the same circumstances? It's a good question. And, you know, like, for instance, you'll go to a nonprofit and, you know, I do a lot of work for this one nonprofit and the CEO and many CEOs in this world are really media ready. They are great. You put them on a podium, they are amazing. Um, and they tell their mission well, because, because they've written it, they've, they, they've, They've lived it. They do it every day. So they're really quick and adept at telling the mission statement to, a, to an audience. And so they want to be filmed. Right. And I always tell my clients, you know, what makes it truly authentic, though, and even though you are a nonprofit, because you're the CEO, it kind of feels like you're selling again. And I'm trying to get a, away from selling versus the people that you hate, you help. I don't care if they're inarticulate. I don't care if it's someone 
who dropped out of school. And Frank, I, I mean, I, I shoot a lot of dropouts. I don't care if, if they don't present themselves like the CEO would. What I care is, you know, the power of their story. And I always tell, you know, my clients, I go, it's always better to have them tell the story. Have them tell what you did for them. You know, it's they're the third person endorsement. They're the person who the dollar finally found its way to. Right. The dollar that was donated finds its way to that person, whether it's a poacher in the Serengeti who is now a beekeeper because he got entrepreneur training or whether it's a guy who was a homeless vet who was a drug addict for 40 years. And because of your money, he got cleaned up. He's sober and now he's studying to be a drug counselor. Or here's this guy who was in jail for 17 years for armed robbery and is now out, but always liked to cook. And now you trained him to be a chef and now he's a chef. I mean, those are the stories, you know, that's what I want to buy into. You want to buy into, you know, the work that you've done, not what you believe in, but the work that you've done. You know, it's a very funny thing. You know, I I heard someone say the other day that kids don't listen to you. When they're a teenager, your, your son and your daughter don't listen to you, but they watch you. They watch your actions. And so they'll follow, you know, if you're a hard worker, if you're this, if, they'll observe that. But they don't necessarily listen to what you're telling them. They watch the truth. They watch what you do. And I think that's true for charities. I mean, I don't know that they necessarily, and they, this isn't, you know, um, at times shooting the CEO works perfectly. But I think in general, seeing the people that you help, those are the actions of the of the charity. And those actions speak louder than I think sometimes what the CEO might say. You know, when you're when you're working in advertising, you're usually hiring people to do this stuff, right? Yeah. To be the writers, to be the filmmakers, to be the editors. When you transitioned out of that, you were responsible for all that. So tell yeah. me about your education in terms of playing all those various roles and being sometimes a, a one-man band. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm a one-man band almost 100% of the time. So the way that happened is once I decided there needed to be authentic content, I started to direct. And I was directing a couple of films, and I, I never forget, I was directing a film for triple negative breast cancer and Hackensack Hospital. And I was giving away my day rate to direct. But on the set, I had two directors of photography. I had a sound man. I had hair and makeup. I had a producer. I had a system producer. There were sandwiches on the set. And this was all for very low five figures. And I was sitting there going, am I going to be able to make a go of, of, the, of this business? when I'm?" Because I've been on sets for a million dollars. And the client came up to me at lunchtime and said, the only reason why we're spending this much is because it's our fundraiser. And I knew right then and there that if I was going to create content, not just for fundraisers, but for their social media calendar, right? For their content calendar, uh, little short 60 second spots and stuff on this person or whatever, that I would have to do it all. That they couldn't afford the day rate of these two DPs, a sound person, the editor, the makeup person, they couldn't afford all those day rates. So I'd have to become a one man band. So I, I probably did it the way you shouldn't do it. You know, thank God for Google. I, you know, I looked at so much stuff, even before I bought my camera, my gear, I would just read endless reviews for my gear. 
then I, you know, just studied. I mean, if you want to know what what gamma setting you should have on a Sony, there's going to be countless articles on that. So I started to just read a lot online. Uh, I took an Adobe Premiere Pro course online. It was 60 hours of video. I wanted to kill myself. And nothing scared, no offense, Adobe, but nothing gives you more heart attacks than Adobe Premiere Pro when you're starting out. And then I took a three-day cinematography class, just three days, up at Maine Media, which is a great place. But I think the thing that changed me the most was I took a documentary class. You know, it's funny. I was mentoring a kid who was a graphic designer. And I said to her, I go, you've got a great skill set, you know, fonts, you know, type, um, you've got a great sense, sense of design, but you know, advertising today and almost everything today is about storytelling. So maybe you should take a documentary class. So we went online and we looked at School of Visual Arts in New York City and we looked at this documentary class and I'm looking at it and I'm reading it, the synopsis and I go, hell, I'm going to take this class. And I did. She never took it. So I, went, I took this class and it was taught by a guy. He still teaches. His name is Fred Rendina. And if you get a chance, anyone from New York City, if you want to take a documentary, he's fantastic. Fred is great. And we watched just a ton of documentaries. He really taught us the difference between a puff piece, a biography and a documentary and what that meant. And then there was a practical aspect to the course. You had to jump into the deep end. And you had to shoot a five-minute documentary. And I mean, none of us had really run camera before. I mean, I'd done a h hundreds of commercials, but I'd never been behind camera. And at the time, this was four years ago, I was campaigning for Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, and so was my wife. And there was no bigger Hillary fan than my wife. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll do a little documentary portrait of my wife campaigning for Hillary, and it'll be a lousy because we know how it's going to end. And then I shot it right through election night, uh, where there was kind of a surprise, obviously, and and had a very emotional ending because my my wife. That was just a night that many of us will never forget. But I learned so much from that class, and then from there, you know, I tell people if you're, you know, I tell young people, I go, if no one's going to hire you, hire yourself. You know, I would shoot a vacation. You know, no one needs to know that the Spanish tourist board didn't pay me to shoot that film on Spain or. Uh, you know, and when, when I would do this hike or this trek, no one needed to know that I wasn't paid to do that. And then I did a series of films for a church and I did it for free. And I figured, you know, what's the biggest barrier to joining a church is what are those people like, right? Are they cold? Are they caring? Do they care about outreach? Do they not care? And so I shot all these portraits and I got to make a lot of mistakes because I thought photography was hard, but there's so many mistakes you can make when you film just by touching a button the wrong way or, or, or not noticing that a wheel has moved or what have you. And I made a ton of mistakes and that saved me, you know, so that when I finally did get hired and paid and did my first job for a hospice, which was just an incredibly moving experience and, and, and convinced me that I was doing the right thing, uh, I was ready. So I always tell people, you know, hire yourself. You might have to, it sounds terrible. You might have to do a volunteer job or two, unless you're going to an undergraduate film school, unless you're going to NYU graduate school, or unless you're going to go to main media for their three week training in the summer. You need hands-on experience. It's, you know, it's, you know, and as a one man band, you got to do it all. I had to learn how to fly drone. I had to get my commercial drone license. 
I had to learn how to do sound. I, I discovered that shotgun mics aren't good. I'm going to use a lavalier. I had to learn how to color correct. I had to learn how to use Adobe Premiere Pro. I had to learn how to be a producer. I had to learn how to get releases. And so, but there are just tons of people out there online who can help you with all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's such a wealth of information that's out there, especially on the, uh, on the technical side. Of, yeah. You know, the cameras and editing the software. But story, there's not as much an abundance of information on that. You know, yes, yeah. in terms of fiction, in terms of storytelling, but a lot of what you're talking about is really about the, the importance of story. So how do you think people can, if they don't have the advantage of being able to go to a class and learn from, you know, an experienced documentarian, what's a good resource for people to have a better understanding of how you shape story or how do you how do you tackle a, a story for for a project? Like, for example, the one that you did on, on the poachers. Yeah, which is wonderful. Let's let's talk about how you, you know, go about finding what the story is for that. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's so funny coming from advertising. I always want to be a little bit more prepared, you know, because I'm used to storyboards. Right. And I think that's good in the documentary world to have a little bit of that practice. But sometimes you have to obviously react. And that's a big part. I think documentary filmmaking and storytelling is reacting. You know, it's funny, even just in terms of interviewing. Right. I think maybe the most important part of being a documentary filmmaker is how you interview. And I was terrible uh, at first. I think, you know, I walked in with my 15 questions and I was going to ram those 15 questions down this person's throat and get them to say something meaningful and whatnot. And now I've just learned that particularly when I'm dealing with people like a poacher who hasn't had a huge education, but certainly knows how to express himself is to just start off by, the first thing I do, by the way, is I interview everyone one-on-one before I shoot. And so I can find out what their story is. I, I let them tell their story. And then I decide and I remember on the set what I need to pull out of them. And the first thing I'll say to you, like if I just met you, I'd go, tell me your story. How did you get here? How'd you get here today? Like what happened? You know, what happened growing up? What was it like? So dad wasn't there. Uh-huh. And what did that mean that your dad wasn't there? And I, so I just like, you let them tell their story and then you follow up the, with the tougher stuff towards the end. Mm-hmm. How would someone judge you as a person? You know, I have a couple of really tough questions like that, that I, I hammer at the end, but first I want them to tell their life story in their words. And I think the best part of being a documentary filmmaker and, and trying to be a storyteller is to listen. Because we often, because I didn't used to listen. I used to come in there with my 10 questions, 15 questions, and I still have them. But I'm just letting them flow it out. Let them tell what's happened to them. In terms of a story arc, so you got to get the story. You've got to get the story. But then I also think, and it might be, I worry sometimes that my work is a little contrived, but I, I always look for a story arc. I love to see the struggle. You know, life is a struggle. And I love to get to the struggle. So here you are, you know, going to the Serengeti, you know, the first thing you got to know about Tanzania is the educational system. You're born in a tribe, you speak that tribal language, then you go to grade school and you're taught Swahili. So already you're learning a new language. They go through grade school around the sixth grade, you get an hour of English a day taught by a teacher who frankly isn't very good at speaking English. And then you get to high school and high school is taught in English. So you go from your tribal language, Swahili in grade school, 
English in high school, the dropout rate is enormous. Couple that with there are 100 kids in a class. There are 10 desks and maybe 10 textbooks. Kids literally bring rocks into the classroom to sit on. Then they go home at night, village, rural village, and doesn't have electricity. So they can't study. That's a tough place to stay in school. I don't think I would have. Um, and so they're forced to poach. And Western world typically thinks of poachers. When they think of poaching, they think of rhino, horn, and elephant tusk. But 90,000 wildebeest were poached last year in the Serengeti. And there are consortiums, uh, mafia-like groups out of Kenya that will hire people to go into the Serengeti and poach and then, and then truck it up to Kenya. But a lot of people going in the Serengeti to poach are doing that just to feed their family because they don't have a job. So I never forget talking to this poacher. By the way, the thing that moved me the most was him telling me that the life of a poacher is a nightmare, that when he goes to work, He's walking through four-foot grass. He has no idea if there are predators out there, if there's uh, a leopard, lion pride, Cape buffalo. Then he's got his snares and his poison tips. This guy had stepped on a crocodile. He had crossing a river. He had been attacked by a lion. He had uh, been bitten by a snake. And he said he used to have nightmares about being a poacher and going to work, if you will. So anyhow, I let him tell his story about how he just couldn't take being a poacher anymore. He was just not ethically, but just, you know, how does he emotionally handle doing that? Then this charity Grimetti fund who I worked with, they were the ones who hired me, had given him entrepreneur training and he learned how to run a business, how to run a small business. And he became, he became a, uh, a shopkeeper and a beekeeper. They gave him 30 beehives. He learned how to become a beekeeper and now he's providing for his family. He doesn't have to poach. So how do you tell that story? I'm sorry this is taking so long. But I said, let's take him out into the Serengeti with his gear, with his traps, his spears. His, and as he's telling this story about what it's like to be a poacher, I'm filming him walking through the high grass. By the way, I was so naive. He was really nervous because we were about 200 yards from the vehicle in high grass in the Serengeti. He's like, this is not great. <laughs> um, and of course, I'm worried about my, you know, how many frames per second I'm shooting and my exposure. I could care less if there's a lion 10 feet behind me in the grass, which I would never have been able to see. So I filmed him telling the story about how he was a poacher and why he was a poacher as he was walking through the high grass with his dressed as a poacher, with his spear, with his poison tips and with his snares. And then as we got deeper into his interview, I went to him in his village and then I showed him with his house. I showed him as a beekeeper. I showed him the effect of what his life was like now, his daughters and whatnot. And so your story arc kind of works like that uh, in that case, a little simplistic, obviously, I know. But that's how I shot it. And, and with another poacher, I, I shot footage of the wildebeest. This is one of my worst drone moments. I had to put up my drone. The wildebeest are running. And when you see the wildebeest running, it is mesmerizing. And so I'm just, and by the way, they don't run in a straight line. They run, they just, it's like scatterbrained the way they run. And so I'm trying to follow them with, a, with a, my drone. And before I know it, my drone is a mile away. So I have violated uh, VLOS, which is visual line of sight. Uh, my drone is disconnected now from my, from my handset. I can't communicate with my drone. I figure I've lost my drone. It's a mile away. 
And the great thing about my drone is uh, when the bat- battery's about to shut down, it returns home. So it returned home with like seconds to spare. So I started that one with her. This is a woman who was a poacher. I started that one with just a, a drone shot of the, of the Serengeti of the wilde- wildebeest migration. And she heard her voice describing what she poached, how she poached wildebeest and why and how she didn't want to do it, but she had to put food on the table for her kids and that she was a single mom. And then I cut to her walking down the dirt street of her village. Then I cut to her unlocking her storefront. And then you see her sit down and she tells us she's a seamstress and you see her at the sewing machine and I and I'm shooting her telling about now she's got a life where she's kind of a creative person, you know, choosing fashion and creating dresses and talking about her daughter and how now she can provide her daughter. And then she gives a little speech to the women of Tanzania. So that's my my way of storytelling, if you will. That's great. No, it's great. And I highly recommend people go to the website and check out the various videos that you that you have that you've done for various nonprofits. One of the things with nonprofits is, as you mentioned earlier, they don't have huge budgets. No. Right? And so how do you how do you work with them so that you can produce the content that you you do and still be able to be able to do all the work that you want to do personally, like you're tricking? Yeah. Well, the truth is, you know, I had a great career. And uh, I was very fortunate. And my kids, you know, they're, they're out of college, they're off working. And so I work at cost. I charge half my day rate, which is frankly not a high day rate. And I work at cost. And, and again, they're only paying for the day of shooting. So when I, the days traveling to Tanzania, getting to Tanzania, meeting with the client, prepping, uh, discussing the people we're going to shoot, all that's free. I don't charge until I'm on the set and we're filming. And then I charge editorial, of course. All of my money has been going to buying film gear, replacing film gear. I mean, nothing uh, gets outdated faster than film gear. And then I put it all in the bank account. No money goes to overhead. No money goes. There's no offices to pay for, for, for all humankind. I work out of my house and there's no crew to pay for. There's no overhead of that matter. All money goes to repairing equipment, buying new equipment. And then I put it in a bank account. And then at the end of the year, I th- what I've been doing is I take about 3 to 4% of net, of net revenue and I put that to a charity. This year we gave it to Mercy Corps because I just think they're great at, at, at global, not, not only emergency response, but I think they're, they're a great charity in terms of their global response. So I gave that to Mercy Corps. And, and that's how I operate. I don't have to worry about paying staff because I don't have staff. You know, it's me. And it's kind of my way of giving back. You know, I've been very fortunate. It's kind of my way of giving back. So that's how we do it. Early on in the life of the show, I would get reactions when I said that I produced a podcast about photography. They didn't quite get how I could succeed in creating an audio show discussing a visual medium. To some degree, I get it. But the thing was that I didn't have any doubts about it. I knew that it could and would work, so I didn't suffer from the kind of self-doubt that I've experienced with other efforts. I always try and remember that. We created something special because we believed in the value of photographers sharing their stories and experiences with others. 
These stories have encouraged and inspired not only me, but thousands of people all over the world. And it's one of the many reasons why I think the Candid Frame is so special. If you agree and believe that the show is making just such a difference in your life, help support the show by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Along with many other listeners, you'll be contributing to work that helps to make a big difference for so many people. So please join us today. Thank you. You know what? You mentioned earlier that you you got sick with cancer at one point. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I, when I was watching a couple of videos is how people overcome difficult, difficult moments in their lives. I was watching the video of the woman that was homeless and uh, she, at some point when she was down to her final dollar, she came to this, this, this home that helped her Cheryl. out. Cheryl. Yeah. And I was really, really moved by that. But I, I wonder how you faced your own personal challenge with, with respect to cancer gave you sort of a reference point when you would hear other people telling stories of their own obstacles, whether or not it had to do with health. You know, it could be different circumstances. Sure. Do you find that that personal experience that you have allows you to relate and understand and empathize to a greater degree? Yeah, I think two things have kind of influenced me. You know, when you have cancer, and it seems like we're all getting it now, right? You, you can be depending what kind of cancer you have and what happens to you, it introduces you to being incredibly vulnerable. And I think everyone that I film is vulnerable. They've either had a rough life growing up or they've been a poacher or they've been a drug addict or they're going through grief. You know, the caregivers at a hospice, they're trying to find what's the new normal. I'm never going back to normal. What's my new normal? And that struggle and that, that vulnerability is what I think is kind of moving and to tell people about. And I think when you go through cancer, you go through a struggle and you're vulnerable. You know, cancer made me incredibly, I would say, humble because I was bedbound for a month. I had three operations. One operation I was bedbound and on a liquid diet for a month. When I got out of bed, I was 143 pounds. I never forget a friend saw me and the look on his face said it all to me about how bad I looked. And I think, you know, I had a client, one of my, I, I shoot a lot for hospice and I am a hospice volunteer, but the, I had the head client at, at my hospice said to me, I want you to film this because you understand illness. And I thought that was a huge compliment. I don't know if it's true, but I hope I do. I hope I understand what it's, what it means to be vulnerable. I think the other thing with cancer is, I don't know too many people go through cancer who don't come out of it with a sense of greater gratitude. You know, my entire life, I always felt lucky, you know, lucky to meet my wife, lucky to have my daughters, lucky to have my job. I always lo I loved, you know, I actually loved my career in advertising, lucky to have a home, but I never experienced the gratitude that I experienced after cancer. And it comes out of nowhere. It's like a blanket that comes, you could be driving down a road. And it just comes out of nowhere and it just wraps you like a blanket. I think, you know, I don't want to turn your show into a spiritual show, but there's a great book called The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama. And if you read just one chapter, there's a great chapter in there 
called Nothing Beautiful Comes Without a Little Suffering. And in it, he goes through the step, the progression of going from perspective to gratitude, to compassion, to generosity. And I'm reading this chapter. He's talking about he had a gallbladder attack in India. He's being driven to the hospital. He's feeling sorry for himself. He looks over the side of the road and there's a beggar who looks like he's frankly about to die. And it gives the Dalai Lama perspective. And I said to myself, that's what I went through. Get cancer. You're like, woe is me. Why did I get it? Why did I get it now? I'm one year out of my career and I get cancer. Not even one year. But then you go to Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. You walk and you see people in far worse shape than you. People missing limbs. People can't walk. It gives you perspective. Then you get, you have your surgery and you're just so grateful for your surgery team there is nothing like being on a surgical table and having a surgical team holding hands above you, looking down at you before you go out. So grateful to my wife. I was so vulnerable. Like I said, I was in bed for a month. I, I came out of there going, I don't know what I would have done without my wife. And then that turns to compassion. You're like, well, what can I do for others? And then that turns to generosity. How can I actively help someone else? So that progression of perspective to gratitude, to compassion, to generosity has frankly been, for me, the most important lesson that I think I've learned post-cancer. And you've probably learned that over and over again when you have the opportunity to interview these people and they yeah. tell their stories. Yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you, you want to have perspective, you know, sit behind the camera with me and you hear the stories of people being incarcerated or homeless or lost a 13-year-old child and are trying to find a new normal through hospice and grief counseling or someone in Tanzania who's been a poacher and, and uh, just to make a living. And, and now they, and now they can be proud of how they're living, you know? So I think, you know, the stories I tell, you know, the, from the very first story, my first film shoot where I was paid as a one man band, where I was really kind of starting up for all humankind was for hospice. And it was for, a couple who had lost a 13-year-old child. And, you know, people say to me, what's your crew? And I'll say, well, it's me. It's only me. Because I'm shooting, you know, the two reasons for that. I'm shooting tough stuff. And I, I want to have a very quiet set. I don't want a crew with a bank of cameras. I want people to be able to open up. Um, the other reason I wanted to be affordable, as I mentioned before. But I did that day have a social worker. And I had the social worker of this couple. And thank God I did, because it was... Uh, they had a really rough time getting through that shoot, but it was so moving. It was so, I was like, I'm all in. If this is what it's going to be to do this, I'm all in. Because these people are so strong. I don't know how you lose a 13-year-old daughter. And they're so strong and they're trying to find some kind of normal and uh, they're slowly getting there. And it was just so powerful to find and to see. And that was my first shoot. So how often... You know, do you normally, I know right now there's no normal in terms of frequency yeah. of anything, but right. um, normally in terms of how often do you work on productions? Well, it's really varied. And I'll be honest with you this year I had, I do a uh, 20% of what I do is trekking videos, uh, hiking expeditions. And you kind of go, well, how does that jive with everything else you do? And I'd say, well, I kind of, one, I like it. I like the cinematic challenge of it. But two, I just figure if, if these trekking companies are getting people closer to nature and, and what have you, then that's all part of the mission of trying to film people who are trying to make the world a better place and helping people to see the world out there. But I had a couple, I was going to go to the Alps in July. I was going to go to Peru 
I had uh, a couple other, you know, it was funny. In my last shoot before COVID, I had two films shown on March 6th. I'm sorry, two films shown on March 7th. And I, I went to one of the fundraisers. I couldn't go to both that night. I went to one of them. And I was even debating with my wife whether we should go. And we went and the place was packed. And a week later, at least in Connecticut, we would not have gone because we were a hot spot a week later. And from March until August, I didn't work. I had no work. And now I'm in the midst of prepping and, and getting ready to shoot. And I've been interviewing potential subjects for a shoot that I'm doing over the next couple of weeks. And I'm, it's just so, so great to be back and working. And I think most people, filmmakers I know, doing the kind of things that I do, didn't start working again until the end of July. And particularly the guys in the adventure territory are in big trouble because you just can't travel. There's no place you can go to get hired to go shoot that stuff. Even then that's you guys are kind of in trouble who always get hired. But generally I would answer your question. I'm doing how many productions a year? I want to say 10. So I, it's almost, you know, month and a half, you know, and I'm a little slower because I'm doing it all. I don't shoot in handoff. Sometimes I go, God, it might be nice to have an editor to shoot and hand off once or twice that's happened where I've shot and handed off. But in general, I'm doing the editorial as well. So I, I'm kind of, you know, when I came back from Tanzania a year ago, I came back June 1st. I wasn't done editing because I did like eight different films for them. And then each film had different lengths, like four different lengths, depending whether it was for Instagram or their website or fundraiser or what have you. So that's like, 30 cuts. I wasn't done cutting for them till like the middle of July. So, you know, because of being a one man band slows me down and, and kind of hurts me. But I also do find the editorial process is incredibly war, you know, rewarding. And one of the things that's great is not only do I sit behind a camera, not only do I get to meet these people and I interview them, then I meet them on the set. Then we shoot them. I hear the story. Then I get to sit in my office and watch the story over and over and over again. And it's just, uh, I don't know how else to put it, it's almost like a job of, of inspiration. So I get to hear these stories that people have done, and but it does slow me down. It slows me down from a production workhorse po point of view. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer or filmmaker for people to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that uh, person be and why? Oh, wow. I got to choose one. One. <laughs> that's usually that's usually what I try to hold people on to. I got to choose one. Can I debate two okay. and then give you the final? Okay. I think Amy Fatale, who shoots for Nat Geo, mm -hmm. is phenomenal. And what I like about her, if you look her up on and follow her on Instagram, she shoots generally, uh, she's, I'm not a wildlife photographer. I've shot wildlife for my films that I was doing, but I'm not a wildlife photographer. These guys are really specialized. The Nat Geo guys are blow me away. But I love Amy's work because generally she'll tell the story of, say, one of the last rhinos, last kind of rhinos in Africa, but she'll tell it from the carekeeper's perspective. And so she makes, you know, oftentimes I think people, when they talk about wilderness conservation, it's just about the animal. But she has a very human aspect to how she shoots it. She, 
she shows you and she's she's more of a filmmaker. I'm sorry, more of a photographer than a filmmaker, but she's doing more film now. But I think Amy's work really tells the human story of people who do that conservation work. So if you can look up Amy Vitale, she's fantastic. I would have debated her or Paul Nickton, um, who does a lot of work um, for Nat Geo as well, but has his own company. He does a lot of work with polar bears and things of that nature. And I think he tells a tale of wildlife conservation as well. But I would give the nod to Amy just only because I just love how she always brings the human element in and how she always puts it through the, through the eyes of someone who are associated with that animal, yeah. uh, whether it's caring for them or what have you. And it's just besides the fact that she's just got great composition and great color. And it's just beautiful stuff. Yeah, beautiful work. That, that story that she did in the rhinos is heartbreaking. Oh, it really is. Right? It's just amazing. Unbelievable. And she's a great person. Well, Rob, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate uh, you making the time for Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Rob for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting forallhumankind.com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or reoccurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Ian Flett and Patrick Raycraft for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.